0: Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Good morning. Uh, For those who've joined us, uh, we're past the halfway point of our sermon series based on the book of Job and the theme uh, that we've been exploring throughout the book is the theme of faith and suffering. So if you missed out on previous sermons, uh, you can uh, listen to them on our website or download them and listen to them at your leisure. This morning, we're going to cover the third and final and shortest cycle of dialogue between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, found in Job chapters 22 to chapter 27. It's the shortest cycle because there's not much else that has there's not much else to say that hasn't already been said, hence the repetition and backtracking in the dialogue. Eliphaz's speech is shorter than his, to, uh, his previous two, Bildad's speech is the shortest in the whole dialogue, and Zophar is completely silent. And there's also a discernible change in tone and movement in the dialogue. Their relationship between one another noticeably deteriorates. You can say that in the third cycle of speeches, they're done with each other. They've had it with each other. And this morning, we're gonna look at Eliphaz's final speech, which Bildad merely repeats, and then Job's response uh, to Eliphaz before drawing three principles for application. And as we look at different uh, verses, uh, please take note of uh, Job's confidence in his righteousness before God, and also his general boldness in God's presence. The title of my message this morning is, God is for us, he is with us, and he gets us in our suffering. It's a bit of a long title. God is for us, God is with us, and he gets us in our suffering. First, Eliphaz's final speech. Here's a brief context. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have been unshakable in their belief that God's justice is rooted in the principle of divine retribution, which is the conviction that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer, both in proportion to their respective righteousness and wickedness. It follows, then, that those who prosper are assumed to be righteous, And those who suffer like Job are assumed to be wicked and that they're being punished or judged by God. But Job openly contradicts their point of view, pushes back, insisting that he's an upright individual. Now, Eliphaz, upon hearing this, is not impressed. He thinks that Job is up himself and doesn't hold back in telling Job off. So we read in verses 1 to 3, chapter 22, then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise person benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Eliphaz essentially is saying to Job, Job, God doesn't need you. Rather, it is you who need him. He lacks nothing and he needs nothing. He did not create the world out of any sense of personal uh, uh, lack or compulsion. Therefore, God has nothing to gain from your wisdom and righteousness. God is not impressed with your wisdom and righteousness. Now, Eliphaz is correct in making the point about God's transcendence, which I will explain a little later. Later. This is basic theology. No disagreement there, except Eliphaz makes two errors. Number one, he wrongly applies God's truth to Job. Because Eliphaz does not listen to Job with empathy, he's completely off with why Job is struggling with God. See, Job was not saying, God, I'm an upright and righteous person. I deserve to be rewarded with a blissful life. You owe me that much. What's happening to me is not on. That's not what Job was saying. Far from being arrogant and looking at himself through rose-tinted glasses, Job is honestly and deeply confused and perplexed by the degree and depths of his suffering. He's literally lost everything overnight. And in absolute pain, anguish, and agony, he's desperate to know why this is happening to him. Job was not insisting that he hasn't done anything wrong, but that there must be another reason for why he is suffering. By wrongly applying his theology to Job, Eliphaz also ends up overemphasizing God's transcendence, and in so doing, he misrepresents God, his character and his ways. That's the second error Eliphaz makes. Indeed, God lacks nothing and needs nothing from us. God is infinitely above and beyond us. That's what transcendent means. But the Bible makes clear also that God is equally imminent. Not imminent, but imminent. And that is, he's personal and knowable. That God is far yet near. That God is majestic, but he's also very approachable. Greatly feared, but yet easily loved. That is God. He's not unmoved, unaffected by the choices we make. He's not indifferent to human wickedness nor human virtue. We read in Job chapter 1, verse 8, that that Job's godliness, that Job's commitment to godliness and righteousness brought God's immense pleasure and delight. Job may be a tiny, puny individual, but he matters to God. He matters to God. His choices matters to God. God was not aloof to his suffering any more than the suffering of His Son Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only religion that gives us the perfect balance of God being both transcendent. He's above us. He's beyond us, but he's also knowable. He's imminent. Well, Eliphaz doubles down and insists that Job is suffering because of his sins. He accuses Job of committing a specific list of sins, unlike in previous chapters when Job's sin was mentioned only in general terms. In verse 4 to 11, is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary and you withhold, withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man, owning land, an honored man, living on it. And you sent widows away, empty-handed, and broke the strength of the fatherless. You're just nothing but a bully. That is why snares are all around you. Why sudden peril terrifies you. You're reaping what you've sown. Why it is so dark you cannot see and why a flood of water covers you. Eliphaz's allegations are not only downright false and baseless and without foundation. They're cruel. But Eliphaz's insistence on being right theologically blinded him to this. I want to make that clear. All of those allegations are without foundation. He's just cooking it up. He's just assuming that these are the list of things that Job have done that's wrong by God and wrong by people. In chapter 22, verses 12 to 20, Eliphaz pays another tribute to the greatness of God and the hope that Job, upon reflecting on his words, will repent of his self-deceit and arrogance. In 21 to 30, Eliphaz appeals to Job, Submit to God. This is like an altar call at the end of a message. Job, submit to God. Be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your goal of offer to the rocks and the ravines. Then the Almighty will be your goal. The choice is silver for you. Surely then you will find the light in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done. What you decide on will be done. And light will shine on your ways when people are brought low and you say, lift them up. Then he will save the downcast. He will deliver even one who's not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Just say you're sorry to God and everything will be all right, Job. Again, Eliphaz is right about being repentant before the Lord, about confessing our sins to God, except his words do not apply to Job. For Job has not committed some secret sin that he's being punished for. We know this at the start of the story, that God was absolutely delighted with Job's godliness and righteousness. Eliphaz here is being self-righteous, lacking compassion, and being condescending toward Job. We know this because at the end of the story, God takes Eliphaz to tasks. Now, Job uh, chapter 23, we have Job's response in which he completely ignores Eliphaz's speech and returns to the themes of his earlier speech in chapter 21, where he probes the deeper mysteries of God's divine providence. He rejects his friend's reductionistic and faulty understanding of God's retributive justice as the reason for his suffering. He asks, To appear before God so he can plead his case before him. He's certain that God would vindicate him if he was given the chance. In verses uh, verses 10 to 12 in chapter 23, Job says this, "'But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps.'" I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But at the same time, Job is troubled by two things. Firstly, he's troubled by the elusiveness of God. In chapter 23, verses 3 to 4 and 7 and 9, if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. There the upright can establish the innocence before him. There I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the north, I do not see him. And when he returns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. So Job is desperate to plead his case before God, but he fears that he's not going to find him. Where is God? God is elusive. And the second thing that Job is troubled by is the unpredictable of response. So on the one hand, he wants to meet God and plead his case. But on the other hand, he's also not sure what God would say to him. Job is conflicted. He's quietly confident that he has a case. But what if God answers in a way he's not expecting? What if God does have a purpose in allowing him to suffer? Because God stands alone and who can oppose him? God can do whatever he pleases He carries out his decree against me and many such plans he still has in store. Verses 13 to 17, that is why I'm terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I'm not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Despite his terror, Job insists on speaking with God. I love that about Job. I will pursue my quest to speak to God. Retributive justice does not always explain suffering. Job has seen the righteous suffer, namely himself, and he has seen the wicked go unpunished. He struggles to make sense of this, and that's the focus of chapter 24. But it's not until verses 22 to 25 that Job receives insight. He says, But God drags away the mighty by his power. Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. For a little while they're exalted, and then they're gone. They're brought low and gathered up like all others. They're cut off like heads of grain. If it is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing, so Job gets this moment and realizes: No, God takes note of the wicked. Justice will happen in this life, if not in the next life, for God is just. In Job, in chapter twenty-five, Bildad speaks and returns to Eliphaz's view of God being transcendent, but a disinterested. And an aloof figure. Bildad insists that God is holy and set apart from everything else. He must punish sin. And Job's suffering is proof that he is nothing but a sinful worm of a man. Dominion and all belong to God, Bildad says. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? On whom does his light not rise? How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure, even if if even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes? How much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who's only a worm? What a horrible, horrible thing for Bildad to say to Job. See, Bildad is partially right about God but dead wrong about Job. How can then a mortal man be righteous before God? How can one born of a woman be pure? Of course, we know the answer to that question. It's found in the prologue. God himself considers Job to be blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. In somewhat of a role reversal, in chapters 26 to 27, Job assumes the role of a teacher. After sarcastically berating Bildad, Job points out that his suffering is somehow connected to God's incomprehensible, mysterious, and glorious wisdom, which is not of this world, and that our foolishness, in contrast, becomes very apparent when we limit God's providence to a heartless and rigid application of the principle of retributive justice, as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have done. There are lots of things we don't know about God. There are lots of things about the cosmos we don't understand, and we should be humble about this. In chapter 27, Job asserts once more that he is an innocent man who has not brought down God's wrath upon himself through some secret sin he has committed. He tells them in verses 2 to 6, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils My lips will not say anything wicked and my tongue will not utter utter lies. I will never admit that you are in the right, Eliphaz. Until I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Can you see what what Job is saying, it's, it's like Eliphaz is acting like a lawyer and saying to Job, Job just confess just sign the statement the statu- make a statutory declaration that you've stuffed up, that you have, you, you, you've done the crime and then you'll be out of jail then everything will be put right everything you have will be restored just admit that you're guilty and the punishment will end And Job says, I'm not going to admit to something I haven't done. I won't. I know the alternative is very appealing, but I will not admit to anything that I'm not done. And Job's conviction clearly disproves Satan's allegation. Remember at the start, does Job fear you, God, for nothing? Clearly, Job fears God. He's not doing it for the blessings Because if he was doing it for the blessings, he would have have taken on Eliphaz's appeal and said, yes, I will confess and then let's get, get the suffering over and done with. Eliphaz is saying, no, if I have to suffer some more, I will. Because I haven't done anything that merits this. So we shouldn't read Job's Defense of himself is a self-righteous vindication because it is not. This is the plea of an innocent sufferer who's honest about his feelings to a merciful God, asking this merciful God to help him make sense of what's happening to him. And this is a critical point to keep in mind in terms of the plot of the drama in the book of Job. So let me suggest three applications we can extract and apply in the here and now. Number one, be compassionate instead of giving pat and glib answers to those who are suffering. That's the first thing we learn from this exchange, this final exchange between Job and his three friends. Be compassionate instead of giving pat and glib answers to those who are suffering. When people experience suffering, They need compassion, not pat and glib answers, even if you believe that they're theologically grounded and sound. For instance, Eliphaz does mean well. There's no malice in his words. He wants to help his friend Job. But his problem, like a lot of us, is that he was rather quick to advise then listen to Job with compassion, which lies at the very heart of who God is. Eliphaz was quick to give Job a theological lecture, something that Job didn't need. At the end of the day, we don't fully know why people suffer. Eliphaz should have been humble about the fact that he didn't have all of the information he needed to assess Job's situation correctly. Instead, he should have just been compassionate to Job, which means, in part, seeing Job's problems with Job's eyes and feeling it with Job's feelings. I read once compassion being described as the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live in someone else's skin. It's a great definition. Of compassion. compassion is the fatal, sometimes fatal, capacity for feeling what it is like to live in someone else's skin. And this was how God demonstrated his compassion to us. He came in the flesh in the form of Jesus, identified with and shared in our pain and sorrow and suffering. Instead of responding with compassion to Job, Eliphaz was being arrogant. He had made up his mind about the cause and solution to Job's suffering. His arrogance blinded him to his heartless response to Job. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote Judging others make us blind, whereas love slash compassion is illuminating by judging others we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Now, a note to those who are suffering here or watching online. If you're suffering, can I plead with you to be careful of self-pity and to watch out that you don't obsess over your suffering and pain that you're not pain- and suffering-centered. Take on board the late Jane Marcheski's advice at america Got Talent Got Talent audition about a couple of years ago. A Christian, she was first diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer in 2017. Within months after being declared cancer-free in 2018, the cancer returned. In the same year, in the same year, her husband of five years left her because of a cancer. When she auditioned for AGT, her cancer had spread to her lungs, to her spine, and to her liver. That's her there on the right in the black t-shirt. When the judges felt sorry for her, she said to them, It's okay. I'm so much more than the bad things that happened to me. It's okay. I'm so much more than the bad things that happened to me. After a performance, she said to the judges, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. You can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. Yeah, I'm sick. I'm suffering, I'm in pain. but I'm not going to let that stop me from living. I'm not going to wait till I get better, before I go, OK, I can start praising God now, I can start doing what I want to do now." No, I'm not going to wait for that. I'm not defined by my pain, by my suffering. That's not who I am. I'm a child of God. And I'm not going to wait till my problem goes away before I start living. Look to God ultimately as the source of your comfort, as the source of your care, and as the source of your validation. Don't look to people. Number two, we have more confidence than Job about our righteousness before God. If Job is able to have such confidence about his righteousness before God, how much more We, whom Jesus has made righteous through his death on the cross. Hey? In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21, therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is the gospel that we're charged to preach. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to say to you, be reconciled with God. You can be reconciled to God before the service ends. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you know that when we put our faith in Jesus where we put our faith in his finished work on the cross, not only are our sins taken away, but something else happens. We receive the righteousness of Christ. Do we, are we aware of that? That Jesus doesn't just take away our sins. He gives us his very righteousness upon which we stand before God. So brothers and sisters, if Job, without knowing Jesus, can be so convinced about his righteousness before God, how much more those of us who have been put right with Jesus. Amen? And thirdly, we we have more confidence than Job about coming boldly to God. In the light of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, we read the words, Therefore, since we have, A great high priest, Jesus, who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then, because of that, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. So that we may receive help and find grace to help us in our time of need, our time of need, we have a high priest who gets us, who gets us, not aloof, not disinterested, but who gets us completely. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning to reflect on the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Let us not be like Eliphaz in our response to those who are suffering. Yap, 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 yap. Listen, listen far more than we're speaking. Throw away your theology, suspend it. Not, not believe it. Just put it aside. And be present to the sufferer. Feel what the sufferer is feeling. See what the sufferer is seeing. Don't be quick to answer. Don't be quick to explain what's going on. Even by using the scripture. Sometimes we do more damage than harm when we do that. but you won't go amiss with compassion. Just be present to the suffering. Because Jesus lived more righteously than Job ever could and died in our place so that we can become the righteousness of God, receive this morning his comfort, his strength that comes from knowing that God completely approves of you whether you're in your pain and suffering or not. Because Jesus endured experienced more unjust suffering than Job ever could. Not only do you have access to God's presence 24-7, unlike Job, you can be bolder than he ever was or could be. There is nothing you can say to God that will cause him to turn his face from you. He has made a covenant with you that he will be with you And he will not leave you nor forsake you. If you're struggling and if you're suffering, God is not only with you and for you, he gets you. He gets you. So I'd like us to sing, I will boast in Christ before we come up and receive the bread and cup. So let's sing this wonderful, glorious song about what Jesus has done on the cross and that he is the reason our righteous standing before before God and he is the reason for our confidence before God our confidence is not in ourselves but in Christ alone thanks for listening we hope that you have been blessed by the message Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church